Basically, we built this little library because we couldn't decide which analytics tool we wanted to use, and there were so many different options that all looked so similar. And eventually we had open sourced it, and people had started starring it on GitHub and contributing to it. It was the first time that we had ever felt pull with something. And to my great surprise, it went straight to the top of Hacker News, got a few hundred upvotes, got a few thousand email signups, a few thousand stars on GitHub, and people were reaching out to us on LinkedIn demanding access to this beta product that didn't exist. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we power the world's best enterprise software. The Enterprise Ready podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode, we interview Peter Reinhardt, founder and CEO of Segment. Peter's journey with Segment is a tale of finding product market fit and then turning that into a repeatable process. We'll dive deep into how Peter and his team figure out which features and new products to build by doing deep enterprise customer discovery. Hey, Peter. Welcome. Great to be here. Cool. So let's just dive right in. So can you just tell us a little bit about your background and about Segment? Yeah, sure. So I actually studied aerospace engineering at MIT and then left after my junior year to start a software company with uh, my two roommates from college, Ilya and Calvin, and our friend Ian from Rhode Island School of Design. And we got into Y Combinator in the summer of 2011 and started building a classroom lecture tool. And that idea ended up being really bad. As we failed at that idea in the sort of the first six months, I'm happy to tell that story. And then we spent about a year trying to build an analytics tool, which was also a really bad idea. And about 18 months in, we're failing pretty badly and uh, decided to make one last shot uh, with the seed funding that we had left. uh, And that ended up being Segment. So this is 18 months in, you've tried a bunch of things, failed a few times at different ideas, Mm -hmm. and you sort of decided to like kind of this last ditch effort. Talk about that part. Let's dive into there. Yeah, so we had raised about 600k and by 18 months in we had spent probably 500k of that. So we had about 100k left on the bank and we realized that we only had one more shot with that funding and we were sort of looking around for like what would be a good idea? What's something that we have that could be compelling as this last shot? And there was this little open source library that we had originally built for ourselves at the very, very beginning when we were a classroom lecture tool. And what this little library did is it would take in data points about who a customer was and what they were doing from inside of a web app. And then it would federate and fan that data out to analytics tools. So it would send it to our Google Analytics account, it would send it to our Kissmetrics analytics account, to our Mixpanel analytics account. And basically we built this little library because we couldn't decide which analytics tool we wanted to use and there were so many different options that all looked so similar. And over time we had cleaned up this you know, 50 lines of code and structured it better and so forth. And eventually we had open sourced it and people had started starring it on GitHub and contributing to it. And so by the time we were 18 months in, it had really small traction on GitHub, like maybe 25 stars and a few pull requests. But it was the first time that we had ever felt pull was something, right? People were discovering this thing on their own and starring and, and using it. We were never really pushing it. And so that, I think, was the important signal of product market fit. But when my co-founder Ian sort of proposed this as, oh, this is what we should do with our last shot, I, I thought this is probably the worst business idea I've ever heard. Uh, because this open source library is you know 500 lines of code, and it's already open source. So I don't understand. Like, how do we build a business around that, even if it's a even if it's a useful library? And so we fought all day trying to figure out whether or not we should take this as our last idea. And I remember going home and just racking my brains trying to figure out how to kill the idea. And came in the next day, and I was like, "All right, guys, here's what we should do. Let's build a landing page. It'll be a really beautiful landing page that'll pitch the value of this library that does this data routing." 
and let's put it up on Hacker News, and we'll have a little email sign-up form at the bottom where people can sign up if they're interested in using this thing, and we'll just see what happens. And I was thinking this will definitely kill it, because nothing ever does well on Hacker News. And we did that, built a landing page, put it up, and to my great surprise, it went straight to the top of Hacker News, got a few hundred upvotes, got a few thousand email sign-ups, a few thousand stars on GitHub, and people were reaching out to us on LinkedIn demanding access to this beta product that didn't exist, uh, where you would be able to route the data through a SaaS application rather than an open source library. And so that was the that was the birth of the product. So it didn't even exist when you first launched it outside of the open source. So you didn't have the hosted thing. You just thought, let's test the demand. That's right, exactly. So then we hurriedly built the the first actual app version over the next five days and launched that. <laughs> over five days. That's amazing. That's, yeah. And so when you were doing that, right? I mean, it's, it sounds like you know you didn't really have this enterprise software background. You didn't have a lot of experience, you know, at Oracle and Red Hat. I'm guessing the other ideas you were considering were probably consumer apps and things that you might you know have more experience with. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I think we were looking at like uh, friends having fun together app or something like that. We we told Paul Graham about this, and he's like, "I've heard that idea three times today. It's a terrible idea." Uh, so, uh, but yeah, we were probably mostly consumer ideas. And then, you know, did you consider Segment Enterprise Software when you launched it? Did you think about it as just like a SaaS app? How, how did you think about it? We actually thought about it, I think, as startup software at the time because Hacker News is mostly seemingly people from startups who care about startup stuff, and it seemed like the open source library was getting adopted and used by startups. So we assumed that we were solving a problem for startups. I don't think we had a lot of sophistication around understanding whether or not it was a truly huge market where we could serve the enterprise, or whether it was a smaller market where we would only solve a problem for startups. Frankly, at the time, we were just interested in surviving, and you know, it gave us an opportunity to survive and at least build something. So I don't think we had a lot of sophistication around thinking through how large of a market it was or whether we would actually be able to serve the enterprise. By the end of that first year, though, it was becoming obvious that the problem that we were solving was much worse in the enterprise. Right? Like A startup has one website, one analytics tool, one email marketing tool, something like that. Whereas an enterprise has multiple business units. Each business unit has a website, an iOS app, an Android app, maybe a Roku set-top box or something. And they have actually maybe even several different websites, or at least different ages of websites, where one part of the website is written in one framework and another part is written in another. And so just the morass of all the different data pipelines moving around between different places was much, much worse in the enterprise. So we, we, got, a, we got a pretty good flavor, I would say, in like the first nine to 12 months, that what we had stumbled across was actually a very deep enterprise problem, and we had maybe discovered a unique route into solving it. And then we started to have sales advisors and other folks who were like pushing us towards starting to think about pricing more for larger companies and developing the product more for larger companies. Oh, right, because you didn't charge anyone right away, did you? That's right. It was a completely free product for the first six months, and then we very, very nervously and sort of tepidly tested the waters for whether or not anyone was going to be willing to pay for it. Uh, I remember sending an almost apologetic email when we were asking people to pay $10 a month for access to the service. and. We later on had a had a sales advisor who you know we were charging $120 a year or whatever and and uh, he was advising me as we were headed into the sales meeting and he said, well you have to ask for $120,000 a year and I was like I don't know if I can do that <laughs> that that seems crazy and he's like well if you don't do it then I quit as your advisor and I was like okay well I guess I'm asking for 120k so we went in we asked for 120k and I turned beet red. And uh, my counterpart said, well, how about 12K a year? And I was like, okay, well, how about 18? And he's like, okay, sounds good. So we signed the deal at 18K a year, which you know, from his perspective was 85% off, but from, from my perspective was you know, 150X the original price. So I guess both parties won there. That's amazing. There are many stories of, of sort of bottom-up enterprise software companies that sort of stumble into that type of pricing where you just have to ask for more. And it never ends. And in fact, I don't think it ever can end because it's the only way that you discover the actual value that you're, you're getting, right? And you, when you ask for 5 million a year, 10 million a year, 100 million a year is the only time when someone says, that's crazy. And you're like, well, why? And you're like, well, because here's how I think about the ROI. And then they explain to you exactly how it is that they would approach valuing it. Which 
may not be helpful for that sales conversation, but it's helpful for every sales conversation you have after that. Yeah, talking to your users, right? That's that's an important piece of it. So tell me a little bit about like when did you start building like core features that enterprises were asking for that you know you didn't think that any other startup would need? So it's only recently that we've started building what I would call features of the product that are specifically for enterprises. And by recently, I mean in like the last maybe 12 to 15 months. Prior to that, the only things that we would build for specific customers were specific integrations. So, you know, segment as a service where we pull in data from a company's websites and mobile apps and help desks and CRMs and so forth, and we fan that data back out to analytics tools, email marketing tools, ad conversion pixels, data warehouses, etc. And so our largest customers and our largest prospects would say, well, you know, I really need to be able to send my data to Exact Target, or I really need to be able to send my data to Marketo or Adobe Analytics. And so that would be an indicator to us that that integration was important. And so as part of a deal, we would agree to build a specific integration. That was really the or a specific source of data or a specific downstream destination of data. And that, that, w- that was really the only customization that we would do for an enterprise. We now are starting to realize, especially as we're selling to enterprises globally, so not just a business, single business unit, but actually a global enterprise, we actually need another level of account structure. So I think a really common thing that a lot of enterprise companies experience, and that we certainly are now, is how do you actually structure permissions, access, accounts, roles, all those things for a much larger customer? Anyway, so that's probably one of the first things that we're actually building now. Oh, interesting. So I I think I do remember when you're pricing the differentiation between the plans was sort of access to these like more enterprisey integrations. Is that right? Yeah, and what we realized is that it just it wasn't actually that correlated with value. Uh, you really want to align your pricing with value that the customer is getting out of it, and access to those enterprise integrations was sort of. I mean, it was the core value of the product, but it didn't differentiate. Like, why are you paying ten x more for this integration that? Clearly, took you no additional effort as compared to other integrations. Like it just didn't, it didn't feel good to the customer. So we ended up with a pricing model then that was around billing for API calls, the amount of data flowing through. That has some negative effects where you basically disincentivize your customer from using the product fully because they want to always be minimizing their usage in order to bring their bill down. That's not great. And so we eventually ended up with billing for monthly tracked users in sort of three different tiers. So as you grow your business, we grow with you and we're helping you grow. And so therefore we're both aligned and it slopes with the value of, of helping you grow the business. Oh, interesting. And so you've you've made some changes there and started to add in. I, I'm looking I'm on your pricing page now, and so you have the business plan. Mm-hmm. And that seems to really have some what I would think about as traditional, you know, enterprise ready sort of features that differentiate. So things like single sign-on and SLA, and you're saying those features you really only started adding on in the last 18 months or so? Yeah, so I mean, SLAs are really, uh, it's more about the legal aspect of the agreement. For most multi-tenant services, you're not actually doing much different in the product in terms of providing that SLA. So really, that's a contractual obligation. Single sign-on is getting at this account structure, access levels, same thing. These are sort of things that enterprises really need just because they have so many people in so many different roles doing different things. There are a few features here that are more enterprise, so like more customization of how things work, like being able to selectively decide where data goes or being able to sync data faster into your data warehouse, things like that. And those are those are all pretty recent. Yeah, I saw some things like data validation, which feels like a data loss prevention type tool to prevent information from flowing in. So mm-hmm. I mean, so when you think about building these features and how are you doing that discovery with your customers? Is all of this based on feedback from customers and push on requests for, hey, we really need this in order to adopt, or we would use more if we had this feature? How do you get that information from them? So I think when customers tell you that they won't adopt because you're missing X small feature, I actually think it's an excuse. And what it really means is the value was not high enough in order to overcome a relatively small objection. And I think it's actually more, the negative space there is really, uh, in the comment that they're making is actually that the value isn't there, but they don't want to tell you that. It's easier to tell you that it was because of X feature or they would need X feature or whatever. But really, it's the I think the actual message there is much more important, and it's that the value isn't there. So we've never, aside from integrations, 
we really don't commit to building features as part of a, an agreement with a larger customer. We'll say, hey, for a really large customer, like you should be part of our customer advisory board. We're really going to be interested in your feedback. Uh, we are generally building this product to be more enterprise ready. Here's a flavor of the things that are coming. Um, but we're not going to sort of be held hostage to a specific feature request, mostly because the value should stand on its own in such a way that that they can use it and are getting enough value out of it that they're willing to overlook something like that. So that, that's always been our experience, that when the value is there, enterprises are willing to overlook it. That's, that's really interesting. So instead of going customer by customer and deal by deal and taking those orders, you're building you know, a customer advisory board, which you utilize to sort of get that feedback in a more like group setting. Yeah, and, and another way of looking at it is rather than looking at your prospects who are like, or closed loss deals of like, oh, they wouldn't buy it because I didn't have X feature. I think that's really dangerous because you'll have a lot of false positives in there. Like you'll go build a bunch of stuff that won't matter. But when you have a customer, they'll actually tell you the things that they really need and you have the opportunity to go 10x deeper in understanding why they need that. And when you deliver it to them as a beta feature, they're already set up and you can see immediately whether they're actually going to adopt that thing or not, which then allows you to save a lot of time in terms of developing only the things that actually matter and only launching the things that actually matter. So I think you can prevent a lot of bloat and a lot of complexity by paying more attention as you're building out sort of features that are specific to the enterprise, pay more attention to what things your existing customers want and being really careful about analyzing closed loss too carefully on a feature basis. That's great. Let's talk more about that process of, you know, GA and, and beta and sort of how you think about, you know, building out a feature and getting it into customers' hands before you launch it more publicly. Yeah, we have different processes for features versus products. So features, we tend to roll out to just like a percentage, uh, oftentimes to self-service first, actually, because they're a little bit more tolerant of uh, of issues, whereas you know enterprise customers are expecting slow and steady, but uh, works guaranteed. So we often roll out new features to self-service customers or smaller customers, and then over time roll it up to the larger ones. Unless it was a feature that we were specifically building for large customers that we had a specific two or three customers that we were building it for. So for example, multi-level account and role and permissions is obviously something that we would build in partnership with a few large enterprise customers, and then we would launch that to them specifically in a sort of closed beta or limited situation, and then we would expand that over time. For products, we do something similar where we develop the product in partnership with you know, 10 or 20 customers that we think are representative of a broad variety of, uh, of use cases or industries. And then we typically have pretty long private betas. So we'll have a private beta run for six to nine months where we're really confident that it's really delivering value and we actually have use cases and case studies and like everything. And then we launch it uh, to general availability. And that's the first time typically that we do marketing around it. There's been a couple exceptions, but typically GA is the first time that we put it on the marketing website, announce that it's available at all, etc. So our strategy is, you know, by the time it hits the marketing page, it's it's there and ready for anyone to buy it. And it sounds like it's also ready for your sales team to sell it and your marketing team to promote it. That's right. And, and with an enterprise Salesforce, or just Salesforce in general, there's a lot that has to go into getting your product actually ready to sell. If it's a really a major new part of the product, not just a feature, then you need potentially updates to all your legal agreements, uh, which then affects how your deal desk is getting ready to sign those agreements. It affects pricing, which then affects all the pricing calculators and ROI calculators that you provide to the sales team. It affects all the collateral, all the like pitch decks, all the messaging. So there's like a lot of work that has to be done from the time that you have a product that the beta users are using and succeeding with until you have a thing that your sales team can really go effectively sell into the market. Yeah, I love this topic because I think, you know, this is one thing in enterprise software that it's hard to really grasp at first, but you have to spend as much time sort of creating the collateral. Like you could have it could be code complete, but it's not really ready to roll out until, you know, all of your internal teams and stakeholders sort of know what it is and how to talk about it and how to position it and you have, you know, the collateral and the, you know, how do you describe it? And then do you guys work with channel partners? 
We don't really. We have some partners who do like implementation work. We obviously have a whole ecosystem of technology partners that we integrate with and send data to, but we don't have an extensive channel partnership or reseller model today. Yeah, because I, th- I mean that adds like an other like layer of complexity for rolling out these features because now you're talking about enabling not just an internal team but an ex- you know several external teams. Yeah, that's an immense amount of complexity. Yeah, and I think as a product leader and someone building these things, it's sort of one of these things you have to recognize that your job is not to just deliver the feature, you have to deliver like the customer use cases and everything end to end in order to make this actually ready for the market. That's right. Yep. And it is a lot more work than than you'd expect. And and we have shifted, right? So we started as self-service. Now an increasing percentage of our revenue comes from what I would call truly the enterprise, you know, like thousands of employees or tens of thousands of employees. And as we've gone through that shift, the need for more of that supporting material, supporting process in launching a new product has uh, the need for that has gotten greater. So you know, when we were mostly a self-service product, we were just like put up the landing page and off we go. But obviously, you get a lot of sort of go-to-market leverage and and uh, revenue leverage out of having a, a Salesforce and all these sort of other supporting materials and and processes in place. What have you like? You know, as a CEO who. I mean, really, none of your founding team had a background in enterprise software. How have you continued to arm yourself with this information and learn and grow into this role? Like, what have you been doing? Yeah, I think you learn the most from hiring execs who have experience in the field. So, for example, our VP of marketing, Holly, used to be VP of corporate marketing at MuleSoft, classic enterprise software sale. She brings like an enormous amount of experience and sort of understanding of how enterprises buy from uh, from analyst relations to how to run a conference, so on and so forth, right? All these things that you just don't know a priori that that she has extensive experience with. And similarly on the customer success side, you know, Vishal, who runs customer success here, background at Medallia, which again is a classic enterprise company. So I think these are the people who teach the founders as much as they operationalize things in the company and teach the company how to how to go about doing these things. Yeah, that's great. So it's really about the people you've been able to hire as you've scaled and then I mean you you guys just have to stay up to speed and and continuously learn. Yeah, and, and there's obviously you can learn from advisors as well. Like the first sales advisor was hugely helpful in getting us from like an MIT open source mindset to a we're going to charge real money for this highly valuable product. So I think there's a lot of people that help along that journey of just learning more and more. And every salesperson that you hire also comes with experience of how this thing was previously sold at whatever company they came from. And you know how it used to be done at Salesforce or the folks from marketing bring that experience. So even even folks that we hire in engineering, you know, used to work as as say like consultants uh, or contractors, and and they have an experience of oh well, here's what it's like to work with a large corporation. Um, so all all of those things I think add uh, an enormous amount to sort of the mix of knowledge in the company. And you know, Segment is about 320 people today, so there's a lot of tribal knowledge and and information sharing and and learning that can happen internally. That's cool. So when you look back at your Experience of you know, kind of coming from not having this background to now like being pretty deep in the enterprise software world. What are some of your biggest learnings? What are, what are some of the misperceptions you had previously versus what you think today? Yeah, one big misperception was how sales works, which sounds maybe trite or dumb, but I really like. I think a lot of young engineers. And other technical folks have this tendency, and I was definitely in this camp, have a tendency to believe that sales is like showing up polished and like giving an amazing pitch and really like selling it. But especially in the enterprise, but true at all levels, the, the better sales process and the better salespeople have a very different approach, which is really to do discovery and understand what it is that the problems are that your champion or that your leader, your prospect, your potential customer are trying to solve, and actually getting quite deep into understanding their business. So the process of sales is very different and much more consultative and intellectually stimulating and warm and sort of like value-creating than I think most people realize or give it credit because the salespeople that they encounter maybe, you know, 
sold them a car or, or, or whatever, which is a pretty different type of sale. But there, there's really like a lot that you can learn when you sit down with a customer and ask them how, how their business works. And so I, I think sort of like shattering my understanding of what good sales actually looks like uh, continues to be both fascinating and just very different than, than what I came into segment expecting. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I think for many technical founders, we all sort of learn a lot about sales as we uh, as we grow. So feels like an area where we don't really understand why it exists when you first start. And then as you get into it, you start to realize that it, it adds a lot of value and you can, you know, you can get in the room with a customer and hear their problems. You can start to problem solve even better. So exactly. Many enterprise software companies do a total top-down approach where, you know, they have, you know, this outbound team that's creating every lead and, you know, they're walking the halls in these organizations. But, you know, segment comes from more what I would call like bottom-up roots and, you know, you still have, you know, what looks like free plans. Like how important are those like developer signups to your enterprise sales motion? So we do still have a free plan and it's by far the most uh, used plan by number, right? So we have about 19,000 companies that send data through segment today. And well, the vast, vast majority of those are on the developer free plan. And what's interesting to us is if you take the long view on those small companies who are using that, uh, unfortunately, most of them fail as a business. And so what that means is that the people who learned either, either on their side project or their side business or on a startup that, that didn't end up working out, maybe even on the team plan, is they end up then going somewhere else. It could be to another larger startup or it could be to uh, start another company or it could be to join an enterprise. And so actually a lot of our enterprise customers come from people who've already used Segment somewhere else. And so you get this transition of now you have a, a, a champion who was sort of born ready, they know how it works, they know how to deploy it. All they have to do is figure out how to navigate the internal purchasing at the enterprise, and now money no longer matters also. So for us, uh, the sort of movement of people between businesses from small to large has been a huge growth lever for us. And part of that is that we have a relatively bottoms-up sales motion of a relatively junior engineer or engineering manager or engineering director typically kicks things off, and then we end up signing you know, with a CTO or, or a VP engineering or a SCIO. So the sort of like bottoms-up motion of the sale matches well with the bottoms-up nature of people moving around between companies. And just in the last year, we've had conversations with you know some of the world's largest telecoms and uh, one of the world's largest shoemakers, and you know they become customers as a result of you know people coming from startups into those large enterprises. Oh, that's really interesting. So it's not even just a developer, you know, from one of these big enterprises comes and signs up for a plan and starts to put it into one project. It's actually that they've used it before in side projects or other places. And then they want to bring it into their companies. That's right. So if you take a company, let's compare and contrast with Twilio for a second. So Twilio, for those of you who don't know, is like a way for developers to send text messages and make phone calls and stuff like that with a nice set of APIs over what telecoms provide. And that's really a product that a lone developer can use for a little hack at work, for like a demo, or they could... You know, build a little side project or whatever. There's like a bunch of things happening inside a large company where they might have a really, really small use case, and that becomes their in. But it's really it is the enterprise using it. It's just one developer inside an enterprise, and and the question is like, how do they sort of move up the chain? Segment has a different motion, which is it's really difficult to get that much value out of Segment unless you're using it holistically at sort of a business unit level. Like you either deploy it to the website or you don't. And so if you are going to deploy it to the whole website, well, now that's a business unit that owns that website and maybe has an iOS app and an Android app or something like that. And so now you have you really deploy a sort of business unit granularity rather than individual developer or individual team level. And so what that means is that we tend not to land with like an individual developer. We tend to land with a business unit. And so the motion for us is more people moving into a business unit that then we land in because their startup failed and, or whatever and they got hired by an enterprise in contrast to what Twilio does, which is, you know, a developer starts hacking on something and there's a natural motion to just use more and more by deploying it into a core product as opposed to a demo. That's great. So like is there any kind of tension between your developer plan and your paid plans? Or do you think that 
it's a pretty natural progression that once you start using it in a business unit, you move into this next layer. It's supernatural. There's no way. The developer plan includes a thousand monthly tracked users. So if you are a business with more than a thousand users, then the free plan doesn't work. Which makes sense because we have to limit our costs on the free plan too. We can't be processing massive amounts of data. Sure. And yeah, it looks like you don't allow the free plan to do any kind of user management. So there's just one user. That could be the case. Yeah. You know, you mentioned your open source roots with, you know, the JavaScript project, but I think you guys have done a bunch of other open source as well, right? Like why do you do that and how has it helped your enterprise adoption? Yeah, I'm not sure that it has helped our enterprise adoption that much. We mostly do it to show the amazing work that the engineering team is doing and give back to the community in ways that, you know, hey, we built this thing. It's not really like a product that would go in our product suite. So like I hope someone else can make use of it kind of thing. And some of those are more infrastructural, like we open sourced our stack and some tools around using some of HashiCorp's products. We've also open sourced libraries like Nightmare.js, which allows you to do crawling, which we originally used to automate logo creation with 99designs, because we have hundreds of logos in the product for all the different things that we integrate with. So like weird pieces of our tool chain and stack, we've open sourced primarily to... Uh, just show off what what the engineering team is capable of, and it helps attract other engineers who want to work at, at at a company that's that's willing to give back and and where they can sort of see the code quality and and uh, excitement and development that's happening on the team. So I'd say it's really less helpful from an enterprise perspective for us, although it could be a, a strategy that others use. And for us, it's more about you know the team and the brand and and giving back. Great. So it's more of a hiring advantage to to be able to sort of have these great projects and give back to the community. That's correct. Cool. And honestly, you know, some of them now are more popular than than Analytics JS. Uh, I think, you know, Nightmare JS has fifteen thousand or so uh, stars on GitHub, so it's it's doing well. And uh, I'm sure someone could or or should have maybe turned it into a product, but it doesn't align with our strategy. So we we just open sourced it and and let folks run with it. It is funny. I'm looking at it right now. Analytics JS has four K. Nightmare has sixteen K, and even Metalsmith has seven K. So it's like some of your your side project open source projects are are getting more stars than the core sort of value. I mean obviously there's so much more to segment now than analytics js. That's right. And and I, I think not not every open source library is as amenable to being a software hosted product as analytics js was. You can get a lot of value out of metalsmith and uh, nightmare as open source products, but it's actually very difficult Analytics.js is an open source library. It doesn't actually solve the core problem, ironically, which is that the whole point is to try to get the engineer out of the loop so that you can turn on new marketing tools, so that you can turn on new analytics tools, send data to all these new places without needing the engineer to, there to do it. But if an engineer has to go recompile an open source library and redeploy it to the CDN, you haven't really solved the problem. And so I think a lot of engineers like the open source library because they're like, hey, it's great that I can see the code. This is totally the right way to abstract and solve this problem. But at the end of the day, to really solve the problem, you go use the hosted version. So not every open source library is as amenable structurally to, to a business model. And early on, did I mean were all three of you writing that, or was that something that one of you guys did and the others sort of just let happen? I think all four of us touched it in meaningful ways and improved it in meaningful ways prior to its launch on Hacker News, but it was spread out over 18 months. I think the like really crappy like first 50 lines of code that don't even really look like the library, I think were written by me and then Ilya made a bunch of upgrades where then he like turned it into a library and clarified a whole bunch of things and then I think Ian and Calvin did like a lot of fine tuning and polishing and recognized that it was even a thing. So everyone had a hand actually in bringing that library to life. And then with new products that you guys develop do any of the founders still have a hand in sort of like zero to one on new products? Mm, yeah, absolutely. So in May, we launched a new part of the product called Personas. And Personas basically takes all the data that's flowing in from all your different sources and bundles it up into a profile of that customer and your interactions with that customer. So only your first party data. And then it allows you to build audiences that you can market to and gives you API access so that you can build internal apps or or modulate your product or, or whatever based on the data that, that you have about 
each individual customer in its totality. And that product was sort of driven by Ilya, my co-founder. So he is often a, sort of the tip of the spear for new product development. And then Calvin works much more heavily on sort of key infrastructure improvements. So major improvements to like reliability or visibility into data delivery, sort of like core infrastructural things at the, at the heart of the uh, integrations product and, and core platform. Oh, cool. So Ilya is still very involved in sort of the new product introduction. That's right. He led a team of about a dozen people to build that product. That's cool. And you were off doing other things, I'm guessing? Yeah, well, <laughs> there's, yeah, there's a few other things on my plate now. A mixture of sales and hiring for the exec team and, and so on and so forth. All the things that, that fall to the, to the CEO. Yeah, there's, uh, there's obviously a lot, a lot going on there as well. So, but do you, do you miss it? Do you want to, is that something you, you enjoyed spending time with? Yeah, I love spending time on product strategy and, and sort of spending time on uh, understanding what problems customers really have and what we could do to, to solve those problems. I think my role now is, is probably one more of sort of understanding the market and, and understanding a broader product strategy as opposed to specific product choices. I think there's a lot of really talented people on the team uh, who can and should and will do better than myself at working on, on products specifically. But the sort of broad overview of a market and and how the business is operating all that business context I think is is helpful in understanding product strategy and I think the CEO can contribute there uniquely. Yeah, I feel like one thing that segment has done well over time is sort of understand how your customers are using your product but then also figure out like where the edges are and then what they're integrating it into next and then trying to make that next integration even easier. Is that like a core part of your overall strategy? It is. The path of finding product market fit, we think of as a competitive advantage, and that's something that we put a lot of time and effort into refining how we go about doing that internally. I think we were actually gifted with a specific set of experiences in the early days where we failed twice and then saw something work. And so we saw both sides of the coin and sort of had the the gift of being able to observe what happened differently in those two cases. And then since then, we've had a few other sort of product market fit moments, like launching data warehouses as a downstream set of destinations that have transformative effect on uh, our pricing, our growth rate, on pulling us up into larger companies and enterprises. Um, So we've had a few of these product market fit moments, and I think we've tried to be very self-analytical about what it was that actually led to success in those moments so that we can try to have real repeatability around product market fit. I think ultimately product market fit is like the thing that drives the opportunity set for a company, which is if you can find product market fit on a new thing, you suddenly have a much larger opportunity and obviously you need to execute on the go-to-market motion, but the opportunity set increases every time you're able to expand product market fit. So we, we put a lot of effort into understanding where those edges are, which ones are worth attacking, and trying to develop a real process for understanding where and how we should take advantage of those opportunities. So it sounds like it's far less happenstance than the the initial product market fit with Analytics.js. It's like you're much more methodical about this now. Yeah, Analytics.js was a, a shot in the dark that, that worked. And I, I think we learned a lot in retrospect about what we shouldn't be doing. So I think we previously developed a lot of sort of like grand visions. Like we had a grand vision for how we were going to transform the classroom. And then we had a grand vision for how the world should do data analysis. And like the reality is that just the world doesn't really give a shit what your vision is. The market or the world has like certain problems. And if you solve those problems, then it will come knocking. So I think really it's helpful to have a vision for people to rally behind, but it's actually much healthier to really learn how to pay attention to and dive into what customers' problems are. And I think there's a lot of lip service given to that, but it's actually not an easy thing to do. To dive into what problems a customer has is actually challenging, awkward, and actually quite unnatural, I think, when most people actually go to try to do it. Yeah, I mean, part of the challenge is it's hard to earn the right to be in the room to hear about those problems. Totally. And like, why should they tell you? Like, Yeah, exactly. Problem number one, how do you earn their trust? Such that they'll actually tell you what their real problems are. Super not easy. Yeah, then problem number two, like understand those problems, you know, in a way that you can go and try to solve them, right? Yeah, and and the real problem is that most people don't go deep enough there. The real problem is that typically a product manager will ask a question like, 
oh, how do you, like, would you find value in this? Or like, would you pay for this? And then they get a yes or no answer. And then maybe they ask like one or two follow-up questions. But like at that point, they sort of make the decision as to whether or not there's product market fit. And there's like this art of reading between the lines or whatever that product managers try to, uh, try to learn of like, oh, well, you know, are they really excited about it or are they not? And there's like this witchcraft of like, how do you interpret the response? I actually think it can be relatively straightforward, but it's quite awkward. Which is asking like question after question after question after question, and you just keep diving deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into their problem until you get to a point where it's very natural to ask for an amount of money to solve that problem. So, for example, we launched this product called Protocols recently. It helps companies keep their data very clean, consistent, accurate as they're collecting data about customers from all their apps and everything. And the Sort of initial conversations that we would have with with customers would be more like, oh, well, do you you know do you have trouble keeping data clean and consistent? Like, oh yeah, yeah, we do. Okay, great. And would you pay for a product that would help you make that data clean and consistent? Like, yep, yep, absolutely. And we're like, okay, great. Product market fit, check. But actually, the like much better conversation is, uh, do you have this problem with keeping data clean and consistent? Uh, yeah, we do. Like, oh well, like what do you do about it today? Like, oh well, you know, we have a team. Uh, that does all the data QA. Like, oh, well, how big is the team? Oh, it's about a dozen people. Oh, well, what exactly do they do? Oh, well, they every time we release a build, they go in and push all the buttons in the app and make sure that the data shows up in segment every time for every correctly on every single button push. Oh, interesting. And and like does that slow down the deployment process? Oh yeah, totally. We can only deploy like four times a day or three times a day as a result. Interesting. And where are those people based? Oh, well, they're based in LA. Okay, so the salary is like, you know, what, 80K, 100K per person there? And they're like, uh, yeah, something like that. Like, okay, wow, so you spend a million dollars a year just on data QA. Like, yes. Okay, well, what if we gave you a way to enforce this control in this way? Here's a mock up. Would you pay half a million dollars for this? Yeah, we probably would. Like, now you actually have product market fit. And it's like you asked a bunch of questions that feel very awkward and penetrating and incisive. But it's a totally different kind of conversation that I think is not easy to have. What do you think can make it easier? Like, is it just acknowledging that it's going to be awkward and you're going to sit there in weird stares for a moment? Or is there something you can do to help make this a bit of an easier process? I think most product managers don't realize that they can go that deep. It's one of these things where it feels awkward, but actually the other side is like happy to talk about their business. Like everyone's happy to talk about their business, right? Like it's what they work on all day. They love it. And they would be delighted to tell you everything about it. No one else ever asks at this level of depth about how things are going or what's going on, what their problems are. So I, I think most people are actually delighted to talk about it, but it just it, it feels wrong to the PM who's, who's looking into it. Do you do those in person or do those you know via Zoom? How do you do that? In person is always best because then you can read body language, but uh, Zoom can work too. So today you try to do those in person as much as possible? Yeah, and it's it's harder. The other person has a little bit more of a social contract when you've looked them in the eye and shook their hands that they're a going to tell you the truth. Too, it's actually like a little bit of a process for them to get you out of the room and out of the building, and so their pain factors are such that they're a little bit more willing to answer your questions in depth. And how many of those customers do you talk to or look for before you say, "Okay, we're going to build this thing"? I think ten to twenty if they're varied enough. And why do you look for a wide variance just for total market size? Yeah, exactly. You want to make sure that it's going to be broadly enough applicable for whatever it is the thing that you're building. And so you do you go in there with mock-ups, do you go in there with like a proof of concept? What are you taking into them? Uh, we will take whatever it is we have at that point. So obviously the initial discovery of like trying to see whether there's even anything there might just be like a concept and some pencil drawings, uh, or you might just whiteboard. And then over time, you'll start bringing in more and more as you refine it, and you want to like de-risk it further. Then you could start bringing in mockups and say, like, okay, well, here's what it looks like. The problem with mockups and some of the higher fidelity things is that someone will maybe start commenting on like how the UI could be better, which is not really like you actually want to be spending your time mostly getting at the business problem. And so the mockups can be counterproductive in in having people focus on how the UI could be better as to whether or not they have the business problem that they would pay to solve. So more like diagrams or like workflow or data flows or yeah, at least until you validated that there's really a business problem there. You're effectively doing sales qualification without a proper demo. 
which is tough, but you're doing sales qualification without a proper demo. And then once you've qualified them, like, okay, great, sure, yeah, pitch it, then maybe show them the mock-ups or whatever. But it's it's still a dangerous thing to do if it's if it's early and rough because they may give you feedback on something that's obviously going to get better, like the UI or UX, instead of whether or not they really have a problem that you're going to solve. And then, you know, are these things that Ilya is doing, or is this something that your product team's doing? Who's who's taking the first versions of these? These meetings. Yes, it's 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 the product team. So uh, there's a product manager on 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 Ilya's team who's developed several products uh, over the years. Uh, Kevin, he's he's fantastic, uh, and and Niels has been driving this on on protocols and a whole team of product managers that that are doing this to varying degrees across the whole company. There's a different there's a different type of product management that's more refinement of flows and a little bit more numerical and so forth, and that's that's a totally different thing. Oh, interesting. So you differentiate the sort of zero to one product discovery product management from sort of like mature product management. We don't differentiate the product management, not the roles or anything, but we we differentiate the process or or whatever that we're following for the two different types for sure. Yeah, I mean that, that makes a lot of sense. But you have the same people do do both. Sure, at different times, yeah. One other topic that I want to hop into, because I know you guys spent a lot of time on it, and I want to see how it's working out, and what your thoughts are, is, is GDPR. Mm-hmm. You know, This was a hot-button topic a few months ago as that date was coming around. I know you guys got ahead of it, but can you just, I mean, this is a really sort of enterprise-specific, I mean, obviously it has implications down the whole pipeline, but can you just talk about you know the process you used to figure out what you were going to do for GDPR, and maybe a little bit about like how it's how it's worked out. Yeah, so GDPR is super interesting for us. We we started working on it more than a year ago, and and had sort of a product built around it uh, well ahead of the actual go live date for GDPR in May, because segment is. Well, we're obviously a data processor, right? We we have data flowing through our systems on behalf of customers, and then they continue to own the data, so we're just processing it on their behalf. But it's actually a really big product opportunity for us, right? So there's like GDPR compliance that we need with our own data with respect to customers, but there's also the fact that we're processing this data and fanning it out to a whole bunch of other tools that they're using. And so if they need to process a user deletion request or they need to process like a, a change of a trait of a person. Then we're actually really uniquely well positioned to actually go federate that deletion request out across all the different tools where we happen to be sending data to for them. And so there's a real opportunity for us to basically be helpful, not just in being GDPR compliant ourselves, but actually be helpful to them in being GDPR compliant with their customers. And so for us, it was really a product opportunity, and that's why we invested so much more heavily in it, I think, than many other enterprise focused software companies have done. Sure, and as that date has come and passed, you know, obviously there was a ton of build up to it, and I'm sure that there was a lot of conversations. Has it continued to drive new conversations with your customers? I don't think it has really ever driven new conversations for us, and we didn't expect it to. It's a huge boon to be able to explain to companies that we're not just compliant but actually helpful, uh, especially for our European uh, team. We have a team based in Dublin that, that works with all our European customers. So that's been helpful for sure there. The one thing that we have been surprised by is just how many deletion requests there are. So we originally built the API to handle deletion requests, assuming you know we made some rough, nobody knew how many people were going to want to delete their stuff, so we made some rough estimates about uh, how many people would delete stuff, and uh, we've been surprised by actually the volume coming through that API, and so we had to go do a bunch of work to make it cheaper for us to handle each one of those requests. So the, oh, so the deletion requests that you've seen, like you know, sort of in aggregate, are an order of magnitude, two orders of magnitude more than you initially thought they would be? Yeah, I think maybe two orders of magnitude higher, yeah. Wow, that's actually really interesting insight. Yep, and I think from a like regulatory perspective, in terms of like enforcement of GDPR, I assume that the regulatory bodies are moving slowly, and I think we'll start to see stuff land in the latter half of the year. But I don't have any sort of inside track there. That's just my gut feeling is that the enforcement of it is yet to come, and that may cause a uh, a second panic as opposed to just the first panic around the day that went live. Yeah, that's a great point. I think. A lot of people are sort of waiting in the wings to see what happens, and if four percent of of revenue ends up being taxed, you know, as a result of these GDPR regulations, it will definitely put more people into motion. Mm-hmm. 
Exactly. Like, when, when did it kind of come on your radar? When did you realize it really mattered? And how did you decide, like, okay, let's really invest here? You know, I don't recall exactly. I think it may have been a product manager at Segment who's particularly talented for having uh, his feelers out on the internet and knowing all the market trends that are happening, who noticed it, and, and he ended up leading the project to build the product and launch it. Because I'd say, you guys were paying attention to it far earlier than most other companies were. I mean, obviously you built things out ahead of it. So you were a year out ahead of most other companies of your size. Uh, I think full credit to Chris there. (laughs) Another advantage of hiring great people. Well, Peter, this has been super, super helpful. Uh, I, I love sort of learning about how you build new products and how you think about that. So if, if you don't mind, I'd love to just have you pitch segment for a minute or however long you want to pitch it. But just give a, an end-to-end about what you guys do. Historically, most companies have kept track of their interactions with their customers in a CRM, a customer relationship management tool. But what's interesting is over the last few decades, the world has moved very much online, become much more digital, which means that the channels by which you interact with your customers has changed drastically. So companies are no longer interacting entirely in person, possibly with the exception of really, really heavy enterprise sales companies. And what that means is you're now interacting via a website, via a mobile app, via email, via push notifications, via help desk. And so all of these digital interactions no longer fit well into a CRM. And instead, you know, sort of modern companies really need a way to structure, store, and use the data about interactions that they're having with, with their customers. And uh, that's what we call customer data infrastructure. It's basically infrastructure that helps you collect and understand and use all of the data that you're getting from all the interactions with customers across all these digital touch points. And that's really what we're trying to build at Segment. We have three products that basically line up with each of the three major value props of customer data infrastructure. We have our core connections product, which is about collecting data from websites, mobile apps, and so forth, and then fanning that data out to all the places where you would use it. We have protocols, which is the way to ensure that that data that you're collecting from all these very different touch points is consistent and accurate. And it's basically a way of enforcing that data schema, which is especially important if you have a large company with many business units. And then we have our third product called Personas, which is really about activating and using that data by structuring it onto records of individual people and allowing you to build audiences and and market on top of that. And so this whole bundle we call customer data infrastructure and you know it's used today by about 19,000 companies and increasingly by uh, large enterprise customers like IBM and Intuit and so forth. Well Peter, this has been super super helpful. I really really appreciate your time. I know you've got a lot going on. It's been great being here. Thanks for having me. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders.